that you can actually remember years and years later exactly where you were when that happened. How many of you noticed that? I'll give you an example. How many of you can remember when you found out that Princess Diana was killed? How many of you remember where you were? Isn't that really interesting? I still do. I was 17. It was 1997 when it occurred. Uh, I was in year 12, and we were doing our uh, like a, a HSC project for woodwork. And so I was over in, at, at my house in our garage, listening to Triple M because that's the station that we listened to before we had you know iTunes and all the rest of it. And uh, I remember it came over the broadcast, this emergency sort of broadcast that she'd been killed, and we just stopped. We, I mean, I didn't know much about Princess Diana, but it just really impacted me. Like, wow, that's, that's a big deal. And I can still remember this so distinctly where I was when that happened. I can still, in my mind, picture looking out of the garage into our driveway and, and, and that happening. Now, just a little bit of test. How many of you remember where you were when you found out that Mother Teresa was killed or she, that she died? Probably none of you because it happened only seven days later. She died only seven days after Princess Diana. You almost didn't hear about it because all of the focus was on Princess Diana. Anyway, how many of you remember when you heard about the Twin Towers, the planes crashing into the Twin Towers? I remember I was working in a Smash repair over in Penrith, and I remember walking in to work that morning, and a couple of the guys were standing around talking at the front door, and I just thought, hey, how are you going, guys? And they sort of look at me like, did you not hear what happened? Said, what are you talking about? And they told me, wow, wow. So it happens to us when we have big events, like big, you know, events that sort of impact us as a, as a community or as a society or a humanity, but it also happens to us when Personal things happen. I remember when I got the news that Dad had been killed. Uh, it was a Sunday. We'd just got home from church. And I'd, we'd just bought our usual Sunday afternoon or Sunday lunch of, you know, chips and scallops and all the rest of it. It was, it was in winter when it happened. It was a cold, cold day. And I just sat down and we're about to put the footy show on. And, you know, it was, I was all set up for this really cool, relaxing afternoon. And my sister... My phone rang, it was my sister, and I could, I was like, ah, oh, she probably just wants to chat, you know, she likes to catch up every now and again, and, ah, oh, I better answer it. And I answered the phone, and I could hear her, you know, bawling on the other end of the phone, and she told me what happened. And I was like, I can still remember that moment. I remember exactly where I was when it took place. And something that also happens, too, when you, you go back to those places, and it brings back that memory. Uh, driving to church this morning, I, when I drive to church to come down here, I always have to go past the house, one of the houses I grew up in. And as a teenager, uh, some friends of mine, or some guys in the, my year at school, they were killed in a car accident right outside our house. Um, there was a, a bend just on the corner of where we lived, and the, the road kind of went off into a dirt patch um, as, as the road bent around. Well, these guys were coming down, there's a couple of them riding in the back of a ute, and they came around this bend way too fast. The driver was drunk, and they hit this dirt with the back wheel, and it flipped the car, and the, the guys were thrown out, and they were, they were killed. And I still remember sitting at home that night. I was only 14. I still remember sitting at home that night and hearing the accident, because it was obviously very, very loud, and the neighborhood ran out to, to, see, this, uh, to see what had happened. And you know, as the story unfolded, and we realized you know, like, what had happened, it was just this very devastating moment. 
And it was interesting, I was driving to church this morning, I drove around that bend, and most times I go around that bend, that memory comes back. I look at the house that I used to live in, I look at that bend, and then I look at the bush on this side where they flipped over and went down into this gully. Every time I go past, that memory will still come back. So there's something that happens to us when an event of significance happens that we can seem to remember where we were when it took place. Now, this is something humans have always had. Societies have always realized this, that there's an attachment to a place, to a a particular event or to a particular thing that's happened. And so what societies have always done is that they've established what we call sites of memory, places of commemoration. And the idea is that you, you establish a place where you come back to as a group or as a society to reflect on whatever that thing was. And the idea of that is that you're reflecting on something that's important to you as a group, something that really unifies who you are as a group, something that defines you. And so you go back to that place as a group, and in doing that, you're reminded again of who you are, to, to the group to which you belong. Now, there's a couple of different ways you can do this. In a lot of cases, you set up some sort of memorial, some sort of um, altar or place that is located on the spot where the event took place. And we find these all over the world. You find these all the way through and commemorating all sorts of different things that happened through history. So, as an example, when you go to New York, you go to the 9-11 memorial. And what the memorial is, is that they've obviously cleared the building away, and where the foundation of the building was, or the two buildings were, um, they've taken all of that out, and they've turned it into a waterfall. And it's a really beautiful spot. It's, it's, you know, it's just this really incredible sort of beautiful display that they've set up. But the idea, of course, is that when you visit there, when you walk past there, you remember what happened that day back in 2011. Oh, sorry, 2001. Sorry, it's been that long ago, boy. Um, another example, in Munich, there's a place called Dachau. Now, Dachau, for those of you who know your World War II history, was a concentration camp. And one of the things that they did when they overcame the Nazis is that they actually left these concentration camps standing. So you can still go to Auschwitz, you can go to Dachau. And the idea is not to commemorate what had happened, but to remember how bad humanity can actually be. I mean, these are horrific places. You walk into Dachau and you, you go through what was the, the, the main building, which is where you sort of come in when you're first brought to Dachau, and you go through all of these sort of interrogations and different things, and then you go out into the main yard, and you've got all of the barracks, all of the places where everybody would sleep. And they've left two of them in place, two of the original buildings, and you, so you can walk through these and see the bunks and see where these prisoners were kept. This area goes for hundreds and hundreds of meters. And you walk up this road that goes right up through the middle of it, and you can still see the foundations for where all of these used to stand. Now, they've knocked down the majority of them, of course, but you can still see where they were. And when you go up to the very back corner, you can go walk through the gas chambers. And when you walk outside from there, you get to the the train platform. And that's really eerie because you've got the platform, and the train line would come in and then would stop. And so metaphorically, literally, it's the end of the line. That's the last stop. 
And so just to walk through something like that is really, it's, it, it has the effect. You realize, wow, we really can be bad, this human race of ours. Actually, Rachel and I, yesterday, we went down and visited, uh, what was it called? Um, the barracks down in Sydney, the um, uh, Hyde Park Barracks, just down next to the Samaris Cathedral. It's the same thing again. You're walking through the original building, but it's, it's now sort of been rebuilt as a memorial. And it's reminded us of two things. As you walk through, you're listening to the audio guide that's taking you through on the tour. And what you're remembering is, well, how we were founded as a nation, as Australia was founded. But also to remember our convict past, and really importantly, to remember the impact that colonization had on the indigenous populations. And so you, you've constantly been reminded of this as you're walking around the room. And it's, it's, it's a really, it's an impacting time. You know, I wasn't there 200 years ago when this was happening, but you, you're sort of reflecting on your past and the legacy from where we come from. So I think you get the point. And there's lots of these around the world, and they're incredible places to go and visit, because just, just as reminders of who we are and the different important things that have happened that have shaped us. But we see this happening through the Bible as well. Genesis 8, for example, we see Noah getting off the ark. What's the first thing that he does? He builds an altar to remember that this was the spot where God had saved us, where God had brought us back and he preserved us and kept us alive and builds an altar and, and all the rest. Abraham does the same thing. You see Abraham wandering through what will be the promised land and God would continually stop him and say, see this land right here, I'm going to give this to you. And what does Abraham do? He builds an altar. He builds a place to commemorate or remember this is the promise of God. This is going to be our land. And so these altars can be set up in the physical location. But there's a, a more common type of memorial or site of memory that we establish, which is a place that we establish but one that reminds us of something that might not have happened in a location, but perhaps a decision that we've made or something we've determined to do. And so what we do is we establish a place to remember that decision. So I'll give you an example. And this is something really, uh, really cool about the human memory. In ancient oratory, one of the... Uh, one of the key principles of ancient oratory, uh, oratory was really the thing that everyone strives for in the ancient world. And so one of the key sort of characteristics of a good orator is that they can, they can write out a speech, and, you know, an hour-long speech, and then recite it from memory, that they don't need to use any of their notes. Now, an hour-long word-for-word speech memorized, and if you're doing these all the time, there's a lot of memory work that needs to be done to remember that. So what they used to do was that they'd create memory palaces in their minds to help them to remember whatever the speech was. Now, the idea for this actually came from an ancient Greek poet who was commissioned to write a poem for a certain group of, of men. And so he was over dining with these men. For, and so for whatever reason, he got up and he left the house uh, for, for whatever reason. And while he was gone, the house collapsed, killed everybody inside. And so when he came back and realized what had happened, 
the bodies inside were so badly crushed that no one could recognize who they were. And so the fact that he'd been in the room, he could, in, in his mind, picture himself in the room and could remember, remember who all the people were and recognize them from where they had been left. And so he started to apply this to oratory. And so what the ancient orators used to do is that they would write out their speech and then they would memorize a chunk of the speech. Then in their minds, they would close their eyes and they would walk through a house, usually their house or a building that they were familiar with. And in their minds, they'd walk into a room, deposit that piece of the speech and then walk away. Just forget about it memorize the next part and then go to the next room in their minds and walk around their house and keep putting bits and pieces of the speech into all of the different rooms. And so when they got up to speak, they didn't have to try to remember word for word everything that they'd memorized. All they had to do was in their minds walk back through their house and the memory would come back. And you go, that sounds pretty cool. And it is so cool, in fact, that they still do it today. There are memory contests today that still use the same technique. They're called memory palaces. You can look them up. And so there's this thing that happens, as I said, where we associate a memory with a place. One thing that we commonly see around our cities are war memorials. Most towns have them. And so every year on Anzac Day, we'll go gather at these war memorials and we'll remember. And it's literally written there, lest we forget. Because if there wasn't a place, it would be very easy to forget. If there wasn't a date, it would be very easy to forget. So the idea about these sites of memory is that they work for two reasons. Number one, they have a place. And number two, you go there regularly. When you stop doing that, that's when you start to forget. And so again, we see this through the Bible. Leviticus 23 talks about a whole lot of festivals that God establishes for his people. And every year at the same time, you're going to do these festivals. What is the idea of the festival? It's not just to have time off and have a nice meal, but it's to remember something that God had done for his people. So one of the most important ones, of course, was the Passover. Every year at the same time, you have the Passover, and you remember how God liberated you from Egypt. And so every time you come together to eat, you remember that moment. Now, for us as Christians, probably the most important side of memory that we have is communion. Jesus establishes communion, breaks the bread, gives the wine, and what does he say to his disciples? Do this in remembrance of me. Every time you gather for this meal, remember me. And so now we have communion, and we do that very same thing. It's a site of memory to commemorate what Jesus has done to bring us here in the first place. This is why communion is so important for us as a community to do, and not just to do every now and again when it suits us, but to do it regularly. In fact, that's the whole point of our Sunday service, to be able to come back, to join together as a community and reflect on the fact that we're here because of what Jesus has done for us. This is why it's so important to come to church. 
to come to gather together. I mean, the author of Hebrews says this. Don't ever stop gathering together because you're doing it for this reason. You're to remember who you are, where you've come from, and what it took to get us here in the first place. So what does this look like then for us? How do you do this? How, how do we do this in our own lives? How do we establish these sites of memory? Well, I want to, I'll use a few examples from my life only because it's the only example I've got. Now, you might have your own, and that's great, and these might line up, or you might have none, and maybe this might be helpful for you. So, but these are just a few that I do that may be helpful, maybe not. We'll see how it goes. But before we get to that, I think I would say that there's probably four things that we need to do in order to, in order to establish a site of memory. So I've given four steps here. They might, they might be on the screen. The first step is that we need to make, or we, we start by making an, an important decision for change or to instill a certain value. So we make a decision. I want to change this about my life or I want to start to do this in my life. This is something important that needs to change or needs to start to happen in my life. It has to start with a decision, a conviction to do something. It can't just be random. It has to be something important, something significant. But in order for it to succeed, it needs to be attached to a why. There has to be a conviction. This is why New Year's resolutions are useless, like less than useless. Because the reason you do a New Year's resolution is because that's just what everybody does. It's just what's expected on January 1st, that you're going to do something, it's a new year, so I may as well do something with it. It never works, because there's no conviction to it. It's, you, you might do it on January 2, 1 and even January 2, maybe even January 3 if you're really committed, but by January 4, pretty much you've forgotten about it because you never really meant it in the first place. You never really believed it in the first place. You just did it because everybody else was going to do it. But it needs to have a conviction. There has to be a why. There has to be something personal, something that's going to drive you emotionally to do this because it's going to take change. It's going to take a commitment. It's going to take discipline. And in order for any of those things to happen, there needs to be something driving that, something pushing that. So you need to make a decision, and you need to connect it with a conviction. Now that might be all set up, but the next reason why this might fail is because you don't do anything to establish it. And this is the side of memory. You need to... Do something in your life. You need to create a space in your life where you can actually apply it, where you can at least go to to remember what it is that you had decided all that time ago. Now, this requires effort. You can't do this randomly. You have to set something up. And then often what it looks like is maybe a time of your day or a time of your week, a regular time, something consistent something that's familiar, something that becomes part of who you are that you, can that you can go to and that's going to remind you of whatever that thing was. And then the last key to it is to do it and do it consistently. So I don't have to have a place. You've actually got to go to the place. You've actually got to go there and go there regularly and make it regular, make it 
the same time. Make it consistent because then it just becomes part of who you are. When you do it randomly or ad hoc, it doesn't really work. There's no consistency there. So I know this is starting to sound like a bit of a motivational thing, and we're probably going in that direction, so I apologize, but this is really important. This is what we talk about when we talk about actually establishing an altar. You've actually got to do something about it, but you've actually got to go back to it as well. So let me give you some examples from my life, and if these are helpful, that's awesome. Probably one of my big drivers in life is the attitude where or it's taking responsibility for my actions taking responsibility for the actions that i do but also taking responsibility for the direction of my life now there wasn't a specific moment where i this became a strong conviction but there was a couple of things that i'll talk about that kind of coalesced and made me realize hey man if if you're going to do anything with this life, it's on you to do it. It's on you to make it happen. And it, it happened during my early 20s. And I think part of it really sort of came out of just getting a bit more maturity, sort of, you know, coming into adulthood, I guess. But where it came from was that I was probably like most teenagers in that my, my perspective on life didn't have any peripheral vision. For me, life was just dealing with whatever was directly in front of me at that time because that's all I could see. And so what I found in my life was that I was constantly a victim of my circumstances. Things might go well, but more often than not, things went wrong. And I couldn't understand why things were going wrong. And I couldn't understand why my life was going nowhere, why I had no direction, why I was always just constantly just dealing with the thing that's in front of me at that particular time. But then I started to realize, well, in all of these things going wrong, or even in all of these things going well in my life, the one common denominator in all of those is me. I seem to be the one thing common to all of those circumstances. And so maybe I need to start to look at myself. Maybe it's not just my circumstances constantly happening to me, but maybe there's things that I'm doing that perhaps could actually be impacting on this. Or if I'm not going anywhere in life, maybe there's something I could do about that that will actually put the steps in front of me to get where I wanted to go. Now, I know this sounds all really obvious, but for me, that came as a bit of a revelation. And so what I established, it's more of a metaphorical side of memory. But what I established for myself was a mirror. And so whenever I found myself in a situation, or I still do find myself in a situation where I'm either something has happened and I'm trying to work out why, or if I'm looking ahead of my life and trying to figure out how I'm going to get there, the first place I go to is to a mirror. And I look at myself and I ask the questions. What did I do to bring myself to this situation? Now, sometimes it's not me. Sometimes it is genuinely circumstances like this year. It's no one's fault that we're, we find ourselves in this situation. But I find more often than not, when I'm in a difficult situation or when something's blowing up in my face, that when I take a look in the mirror, I realize actually there were things that I've done that have actually got me to this place. And so then the next question is, well, what do I need to do to not have that happen again? 
how do I stop this from happening again? What do I need to change in myself or in my actions or whatever that's going to stop this from being the case again and again and again? How do I take responsibility for this? And all of that comes out of this mirror. Or I might look at the future of my life and say, all right, I want to do something new, something different. I want to get to a certain place. Okay, put the mirror up and ask myself, what do I need to do to get there? And with those questions, excuse me, not just to ask what do I need to do to get there, but also ask, am I actually willing to put those things in place? Because if I'm not, then maybe what I'm dealing with is just a pipe dream. Maybe what I'm dealing with is just a nice idea, but there's no conviction to it. But if I can look at that thing and say, you know what, I'm actually willing to put those steps in place, well, then how am I going to do that? And again, all of this comes out of this mirror. So it sounds like a very generic one, and there's some more specific ones coming, but that's my starting point for most things in life. Pretty, pretty much, I find myself there all the time. What is it that I can do to either fix this thing or to be able to move forward? The second big, or the second side of memory, or the second attitude, I guess, that I took in my life was to get control over my finances. Again, I know it sounds very practical, but for me, this was a huge thing. So I'd grown up in a house where we didn't have a lot of money, and so I'd never really seen what it looks like to have money, because we never really had money. And my parents did their best with their, with their budgeting. We, we never ended up out in the street. But I never really saw how it was that they did it. And so when I started to make money, when I went to work and started to make money, I had no idea what to do with it. My whole thing was make money, spend money, make money, spend money. And that's just how, because I've got money, I may as well use it. And then I was 18 and now I'm old enough to get a credit card. Hey, free money as far as I was concerned. And so through a series of really bad decisions, I found myself in a place, early 20s, we were married at that stage, where, well, two things. Number one, we were in a bad financial position because of bad decisions that I'd made and brought into the marriage. But that secondly, we wanted to buy a house. We wanted to get out of it. We actually we were living in a garage and, had, and were there for four years. We wanted to get our own house. You know, we wanted to have more than one room to live in. And so there was two things on the table. How to get out of these circumstances, but secondly, how to move forward with our finances. And so we established a side of memory. And that was a budget. A budget sheet, an actual Word document where we typed out and printed out exactly what it was and how we are going to arrange our finances to get ourselves to where we wanted to go. And so every time we got paid, we'd go back to that sheet, that side of memory, and it would remind me of where we're coming from, it would remind us of where we're going towards, and also what we needed to do to get there. And so we would visit this regularly because we were getting paid regularly. Now, after a while, that changes because you start to remember what it is that you need to do. It becomes a habit, and that's good. But then your circumstances change. Get a different job, make more money, different things happen. We actually bought a house. Our financial situation changes, and so that budget gets revised. That side of memory gets updated to meet the circumstances. But we've never left aside that side of memory. That's recently changed now that we've got kids where we're realizing, well... It's not just about us getting our financial situation set up. It's about helping our kids to be set up as well. 
And so what are the things that we need to be doing now to set them up 20 years from now? And so we put in place a whole lot of changes, revised our whole budget, and set up, set up a regular thing to enable them to be set up. But all of that is contained in this Word document on the home screen of my computer where I could open up any time, constantly being updated, and I go back to that. And it doesn't just tell me what I need to do with my money this week, but it reminds me where we've been, but also where we want to get to. It becomes a site of memory. The third one for me was getting regular exercise. Now, this is one of those humble boasts, I guess, but I've got a really good metabolism. And I know there's a lot of people going, shut up, shut up, I don't want to hear it. And, and fair enough, fair enough. But I'm, I'm one of those people that I can pretty much eat whatever I want and I don't put on weight. And I don't lose weight either. I, I've always just been that way. Now, when you're young and you've got just no idea what you're doing, that's awesome. I could eat Maccas every day and just pig out and it, it never bothered me. I could sit there and eat a whole pizza. Didn't make a dent on my body. It was just, just had this awesome metabolism. Now, the problem with that, if there's going to be a problem with having a good metabolism, is that you can take it for granted. Where you go, look, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be like this for the rest of my life. I don't have to worry about what I eat. I don't have to worry about exercise. I'm always going to be fairly healthy. Well, I remember that I was having a conversation. We were actually at a life group a couple of years back. And Lance Dobson was there. If you're watching Lance, shout out to you. This was a real game changer for me. And I was just sort of saying, you know, I've got this great metabolism, so I don't really, I've got a gym literally walking distance from my house, but I don't bother using it because I just don't have the discipline to go to the gym and all the rest of it. And he said to me, yeah, I used to be like that. I used to have a really good, meta a really good metabolism. He said, but then I turned 40 and it all changed. And I'm like, oh, I'm 36. Like, all right, there's, there's an expiry date on this, this great metabolism that I have. Well, that was enough inspiration to give me a conviction. I need to do the exercise. But what I didn't have was the discipline. I didn't have the discipline to actually go and do the exercise and have that regular thing. Well, that changed when I read a book. I read a book called The One Thing. And I don't remember much else about the book except for this one point that he made that really stood out to me. He said that as humans, we have a certain amount of willpower. And every day, we're given... X amount of willpower, and by the end of the day, it's gone. And we don't get any more until the next day. And he says, so what people will often do is they'll use their willpower to get through the day. He said, what you need to do is to use your willpower to create good habits in your life that actually just become a part of what you're doing in your life. Now, I'm conscious of time, so I'll, I'll finish this up quickly. And so I realized that's what I need to do here. I need to establish this habit in my life of exercise. And so for me, every morning, 5 a.m., I'm at the gym and I'm doing exercise. Now, I don't enjoy it, but I realize that there's all of these other things that go along with that, like being healthy, like living longer than what I may have otherwise. But every morning when I'm at the gym, for me, that becomes a site of memory. This isn't just about getting exercise, but this is about having enough health to do everything else that's expected of me, that's called of me to do in life. So that's the third one. Two last ones, very quickly. Fourthly, being grateful for my life and what I have. Being grateful for my life 
and what I have. Something I realized from study in history is that we live in the best time in all of human history. There has not been a time that's been better to live than ours, and by a long margin. We have it really good. And more than that in my own life, I'm really blessed. I don't have a lot of stuff, but what God has given me is awesome. And I need to be grateful for that. And so for me, this happened more recently, but we, my wife and I established, well, she didn't realize this, but it's kind of what it's become, a side of memory. Where every evening, between about 6.30 and 7.30, after the kids have had a bath and before they go to bed, we have a time where we put away our phones, we put away all our distractions, and we focus in on our family and our children. And in that hour or so, I reflect. And I do this every night. I look around at the house that God's blessed me with. I look at the great neighborhood that we live in. And then I look at my family. I look at my wife and my three children, soon to be a fourth. And I realize that these are gifts from God. These are responsibilities that God has given me, but they're also gifts. And I need to be grateful for that. That whatever else happens, look at what God has given me. And so I do that every night. Because that place, that side of memory becomes that location where I really remember how blessed I am through God. Fifth one, last one. I'm dedicated to pursuing what is meaningful. Or to put it another way, I'm dedicated to pursuing what God has for my life. And this happens to me every day when I go to work. When I go to work, I stop and reflect on this incredible job that God has given me, that I get to teach the Bible for a living. Now, there's the circumstances, it's impossible not to be unhappy with my job. It's just so good. But the attitude of, of recognizing that or, or just realizing how good it is actually happened quite a, quite a long time ago. So I was in a job, my, one of my previous jobs, I was selling bricklaying tools. Um, just driving around in a truck selling bricklaying tools. And I hated the job. I just despised the job. Because in my life, I felt the calling on my life was to get into ministry. And so everything was just a distraction to get to the real thing, which was ministry at some point in the future. Now, it's fine to be looking ahead and understanding that God's called me to that at some point in the future. But the problem is that you neglect what's going on in the immediate. And what I'd found is that I'd lost jobs. I'd been fired from jobs because I was so distracted trying to get into ministry that I was neglecting the job that was in front of me in the time. And so when I was about 23, 23, 24, my boss at the time pulled me into the office and he said, look, um, we're going to put you on a review because we're not happy with your performance. You've got three months to pick up your game or else we're going to fire you. And that really hit me like a ton of bricks because I realized, well, all right, this is on me. Yes, they're right. I, I haven't been treating my job the way that I should have. And so I reflected on that and I said, to, well, what do I need to do? And I, it, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. God has got me here for a purpose. Yes, he, might, he has ministry for me in the future, but right now he's got me here. So why am I neglecting that? Why am I not trying to see God's plan for my life in that particular job? And it created a whole mental shift in me. It didn't get me into ministry. That still was years away. 
But I went back to work and completely changed my attitude towards that because I realized I'm here because God has given me this job. He's put me here for a reason as a part of his plan. I don't know what the plan is, but I've got to trust that God has got me here. And so I need to appreciate that. I need to pursue that for what he's got for me. And so that shifted my whole attitude so that I can honestly say wherever I find myself now, even if I don't understand why I'm in the circumstances that I'm in, I recognize that God has got his hand on my life and that wherever I find myself, ideally, it's because that's exactly where God wants me to be. And so my question at that stage is not, oh, you know, why am I here? This is so terrible. My question at that point is, all right, God, why am I here? What do you want me to learn out of this situation? And so for me, work now becomes a site of memory. God, what have you got for me today? What is it that you've got me here for? I don't even understand what it might mean for tomorrow, but for right now, God, what is it that you've got for me here? What is your plan and your purpose in this circumstance? So I'll finish by saying this. All of these sites of memory that I've described here, they're just part of your everyday life. They're just part of your everyday circumstances. They're not anything unique. They're not anything that you have to go climb a mountain to go and visit. It's just your everyday life. So there's two options ahead of you. One, do you just go through the motions and just live your life as you are? Or secondly, do you look at where you are, look at your circumstances, things you're going to do anyway, and do you infuse them with meaning? Do you infuse them with purpose? Do you set them up as sites where you stop in those times and reflect on whatever that thing is that God has for you in your life? Those, those are your altars. It's a place where you stop and reflect on God, on yourself, on what's going on, on all of these things that we've just described. And attach to them a purpose, attach to them a journey, a destination, a conviction that's ultimately going to take you to where God wants you to be. Well, now I'm finished, so I'm going to just pray and we'll call it a day. Father, thank you. Thank you that in whatever circumstances we might find ourselves, you are there. And so above all else, whatever happens, Father, I pray that wherever we might be right now, God, that you would still reveal yourself the way that you revealed yourself to Abraham who said, this is just an empty field. God says, but no, no, that's the promised land. That's where I'm going to give you. And so in that point, establishing that altar, that site of memory. Father, I pray that in our lives, that you would help us to establish those places, things we would otherwise do anyway. But you would infuse into them a new meaning, a new purpose, a new destination. That in those locations, we would establish those altars that we would come back to and revisit and remember whatever it is that you need us to remember in that place at that time. And Father, above all else, that we would make decisions. We would make determinations that we will do things differently if things need to be changed, that we'll do things better if things need to be improved. Whatever things need to happen in our lives that you would cause us, bring that conviction, give us that decision, but also show us how to establish an altar in those places that we would continually 
revisit and be reminded of whatever that thing was. Holy Spirit, only you can do that in our lives. And so we pray right now that you would. And so, Father, we thank you and we glorify you in all of these things. In your incredible name. Amen.